One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. This is the eighth season of the podcast, and it's safe to say we've never started with a quote from Winston Churchill. When he spoke about a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, he was referring to Stalin's Russia. It's a phrase that could have been patented for Paul Pogba. The jury's still out on him, even though he's been back at Manchester United for five years. You know the story. He enthralls and infuriates. He's capable of sustained brilliance and momentary lapses of discipline. Four assists on the opening day and he still let the runner go for the Leeds goal. It seems certain that he's going to run down his contract. PSG, according to Miguel Delaney, are ready to pay him £600,000 a week from next summer. That's way beyond what Real Madrid and Barcelona can offer. So, Glenn, if he does leave United, and that looks pretty certain, as I said, what will his legacy be? The Premier League title? Well, if he's there this summer, it'd obviously be one of unfulfilled sort of talent and expectation. If he leaves next summer, I guess it depends on what happens this year. I mean, Premier League title, success in Europe, or bigger success than they've had. Certainly, United look like contenders, which they haven't done for quite a few years, like quite a lot of years. I'm surprised to believe, you know, five years since Pogba got there. But it's interesting that we saw, to an extent, at the weekend, the Pogba we often see for France. On a similar vein, there was an interesting piece by Johnny Northcroft in the Sunday Times looking at Joe Willock's move to Newcastle and how his attributes fit the way Newcastle intend to play, but don't fit the way Arsenal intend to play. So you've just basically got a good player who works in one system and not in another system. And I guess if you've got a player like Pogba, if you're going to invest that much money, you know, emotional time and energy in a player like Pogba, and I think Solskjaer's been good for him, they've obviously got a relationship that goes back a long time, then you do have to, to an extent, not, not so much build a team around him, but certainly create a platform for him to flourish. And that happened at the weekend where Solskjaer said that he basically said to Pogba, you know, go out and play, drift. They had him in that normal position on the left-hand side, but with, with license to roam. And it works superbly. And he has got to extend that with France. The drawback is, of course, that that license to roam does mean there are holes and you rely on other players in the team filling those holes. And I can see that better teams will look to pick off those areas that he vacates. And that becomes, obviously, the issue is whether there's going to be enough talent around him and with, and with him to... Over to compensate for that. I mean, it wouldn't be the first team that has players that wander. I mean, obviously, Messi's been allowed to wander for a long time. <laughs> it doesn't seem to have done any harm with Barcelona. So, yeah, certainly United do look, for the first time for many years, like credible challengers. And if they can keep that system going, you would imagine that Pogba could be highly influential. Uh, it takes a lot of the pressure off Fernandes as well, which would be good for him. I mean, you've got other players like Sancho coming through. You know, right, right. I mean, he's playing in the role that basically Rashford plays in. Yeah, normally, but though differently, but that position. But look at the players that didn't have me. Cavani obviously wasn't playing the weekend. So there's certainly potential there and there are other players, so you couldn't double up on him because other players to look after. 
it's, it's possible. It's certainly possible. It looks more possible than it has done since he arrived. Yeah. It's obviously you know, far too early to make any sort of judgment call, but I suppose in terms of his character, Anne-Marie, Pogba is the sort of player to respond to full houses like we saw at Old Trafford at the weekend. Do you think the fans themselves, you know, because of their recent absence, are going to be an underestimated dynamic of this new season? It's a real debate, isn't it? Because I think some fans, I think some fans are split. I think some really believe that Paul Pogba has failed to deliver for United, whereas others would say that United have not signed the right players to be around Paul Pogba. And you've seen over the last few months or so, his relationship with Bruno Fernandes, you can see that there's a very strong, tight-knitness between those two. And in a way, Paul Pogba has rediscovered his spark. The problem, I think, for some of the fans as well is that it's, it's his consistency. He's not consistent enough. There's no doubt he's an influential player. You can see that on social media, the love that he gets from the players when he delivers as well. Oni Solskjaer talks about his leadership on the pitch, but it's the, it's the consistency, I think, that frustrates fans. They want that all the time. And hearing now, as you talked about in your opener, about the potential for him to go to Paris Saint-Germain next summer, if that goes ahead, I'd be concerned personally if I was a Manchester United fan about his performances tailing off because that would be ticking around in his head. And if that happens, how are the United fans going to react to that? Because this is the year that United need to deliver. There is no doubt in my mind the fans won a trophy. I don't think they mind which competition, but they want a trophy because United have been without a trophy for far too long and they're getting closer and closer. And I think this is the year to deliver that. So there's going to be that pressure from the fans for sure. But it's going to be an interesting next few months, I would say, because if this is his swan song for Paul Pogba, he will need the fans on his side. And therefore, whatever stories are going on around about him, whether he's going to be leaving next summer, he's just going to have to put that to the side and deliver on the pitch. You mentioned legacy, but one thing that does strike me about Pogba is that more than probably any player we've got currently in the Premier League, he's divisive in terms of generationally, in terms of his social media, you know, the haircuts of social media, that sort of stuff. People in an older generation are like, well, you should be concentrating on your football, whereas it's much more in tune with a younger generation. If he does end up leaving with a dominant season performance and with the championship, it is ultimate proof that you know, that stuff is peripheral. Yeah, it is what happens on the pitch that should matter. You shouldn't judge people what they do off the pitch. I think he has certainly, more than most people, has divided the generations in that respect outside of club rivalries. Yeah, it's got to be a player first and a brand second, hasn't he, I suppose. And, and you know, you made the point, Amory, that a lot will depend on the players around him. And, you know, from my point of view, I look at it that United are still maybe one or two players away from, you know, potential champions. The most obvious is a defensive midfield player. Declan Rice was terrific again for West Ham. Put yourself in United's shoes. Would you go and spend money on him now if you can get him? Oh, that's a great question. If you had the money, uh, yes. Yeah, 100%. I know that's going to be devastating for Hammers fans, but I think Declan Rice, the one thing he is, he's, he's another leader on the pitch. Can you imagine him and... Bruno Fernandes and Harry Maguire, all three of them, goodness me, that place would become, Old Trafford would become even more of a fortress than what it is. I think he's he's ripe now in terms of what he can deliver on the pitch, his consistency, his work rate. He can score goals as well. And as I mentioned, he's a leader. I would ex I would want as a United fan, if they had the money in the bank, to, to go and get him. Because I think also for that that team that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has now, you have that wealth of experience, the likes of Cavani and, you know, various others, but also the, the youth that play on instinct, the likes of Jadon Sancho, the likes of Mason Greenwood, Marcus Rashford. And then you've got Fernandes as well. Goodness me. I mean, I'd be seriously worried if I wasn't a United fan about what United have right now. And I just think Declan Rice could enhance that. Yeah, I thought United were very cute, Glenn, in the way that they introduced Raphael Varane before the kickoff on Saturday lunchtime. Just set the mood of the day, didn't it? Do you think he'll give them the stability at the back that they require? I think that suddenly looks a very strong back form. I mean, Varane and Maguire look like they ought to be a very good pair together. 
and then you've got obviously you know two very good fullbacks, Wambisaka and Shaw. That suddenly looks like a very strong back four. And, and Lindelof may not be a, a absolute top quality starting defender, but he's a pretty good backup to have, for example. And they've got you know some backup fullback as well. Then it does look like a very solid, stable back four, definitely. I mean, I guess we don't know quite yet who's going to be the first choice keeper because uh, Henderson's been out with COVID. Well, that's to be seen. Uh, imagine he would establish one fairly firmly. But yeah, they do look quite good. Uh, and one thing you touched on earlier about the return of fans, I think that that, that will help United. I think it was massively noticeable at Everton who probably suffered more from the absence of fans last year than anybody. I think that is something that yeah, home advantage will, will come back into the game in a way that it wasn't there last year. I think that that would also help United, those sort of clubs with with that sort of those places that have been difficult traditionally to go to. Yeah. And what I find interesting also is that, you know, there's a lot of talk around at the moment, uh, Amory, about players who essentially are, are not left to rot on the bench because they're probably on hundreds grand, two hundred grand a week. But when you look at that United squad, it's got some real depth now. Again, would you actually try and balance that books if, you, if you're going to bring in another player? Because if you think about it, Jesse Lingard, who had a transformative effect at West Ham, he's not going to get a game. Dan James, there's still a lot of interest in him from Leeds. Again, he's probably going to be in Jaden Sancho's shadow. Phil Jones, he's basically now the ghost at the feast, isn't he? Do you think a club like United should basically swallow those contracts and keep them on as fringe players, or do you think they should rationalise and you know get what they can for them? I think Manchester United are going to have to rationalise and get what they can. While the team are going to be attacking on all fronts, the Premier League, Champions League, FA Cup, League Cup, they will need a B team similar to Manchester City. The thing is, though, with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he's really consistent with his lineups. You know who his top 11 are going to be, add on three or four more. And those players that are going to stay, if they stay, will have to fully understand they are going to be squad players only, not first team players. And if they want first team, they're going to have to look somewhere else for game time. I mean, for me, it makes perfect sense for Jesse Lingard to go to West Ham United if Manchester United are willing to let him go. You know, nine goals in 15 appearances speaks for itself. He looked rejuvenated. He looked happy. He looked energised, he looked dynamic. You know, you cannot rely on Mikel Antonio to get all the goals because of his hamstring problems for West Ham United. So that is a no-brainer for me. In terms of like Dan James, I think about the way, you know, he joined two years ago from Swansea City. Has he really progressed since then? Has he grown as a player? Potentially, yes, but as a starter, no. Can he offer what others can right now, as you mentioned, Jaden Sancho, Paul Pogba, matter as well. Others that can play on the wing. Dan James is going to fall down the pecking order. I mean, he has the pace, but he's not a starter for me. So I think it's an opportunity for Dan James to look elsewhere, take that opportunity to get regular game time, because that's what you need. And that's for Phil Jones. Well, I mean, what to say about him I don't know. He hasn't played what since early 2020 and he's fallen down the, you know, the center back pecking order even further now. But I feel for him. I really do feel for him because it must be incredibly hard to sit there and watch your team grow and grow and grow and you you are not a part of that. It's very difficult though this. I mean I I hate this because the transfer window should close. The season started, the window should be shut. But since it is open, I mean Mammy makes a very good point about the fact that the Man City bench is a better bench than any anyone in the division. And in fact, it will beat most teams. So there's much better players on the bench there than like Man United. And yet, because you don't know what Pep's team's going to be from week to week, players fill the room with a chance of playing. Quite a lot of those players will fill the room with a chance of playing. Whereas I think, you know, as Amory said, you've got a much rougher idea of who's going to be playing for United if everybody's fit. So those players are basically reserve players. So I think people like Lingard and, and James should go. But as Arsenal fan, it's not that easy to shift players. Yeah, a, yeah, there's less money around outside of, you know, the, the various government or petrodollar fields teams. Players on good wages don't necessarily want to move. So unless you, you know, Lingard, I think, you know, ought to want to move because he obviously enjoyed playing last year. He nearly got back in the England team. But uh, some of the other French players are hard to shift. But United got very good, a lot of very good young players that if you could move some of those squad players on, and, you know, you give your young players like Brandon Williams and people like that games when you do need to fill people in for of, of matches. Yeah, it was interesting to hear Pep Guardiola 
Amory talking or almost making a virtue out of huge spending. You know, his rationale is that shows the owners are prepared to put money in rather than take it out, as some owners tend to want to do. Do you agree with that? But you know, Because those sort of words do sound a little bit empty after the sort of defeat they had at Spurs. I always expect Pep Guardiola to come out fighting. When anybody raises the questions about the club's expenditure or makes a comment about the club's expenditure, he's going to react to that. So I fully expect him to come out and say something. But, you know, it is our right to ask the questions about how they can afford to spend £100 million. And I know there's add-ons and so on and so forth. On a player, and, and you look at the transfers over the last few years, I saw a quote in the paper, you know, they're nearly going to hit the £1 billion mark if... Harry Kane joins. Can you imagine? It's just mind-boggling because it is this is an idea that City have no limits to their spending. That can't be the case because there has to be a limit somewhere, but they have to recoup along the way. No club is a bottomless pit at the end of the day, regardless if you're, you know, a sheikh or a billionaire. No club is a bottomless pit. And for sure, City will want to come back fighting after the disappointment of the UEFA Champions League final. I would also add in the disappointment of the Community Shield as well. They would have wanted to start with a bang and with the loss against Tottenham yesterday, that's not looking too great either. They want to be the top dogs in the Premier League and the golden crown for them is the UEFA Champions League. They are the two priorities for City. They are always going to be challenging for the trophies and they will spend money to do that. In terms of FFP, don't ask me about that because I, I give it up. It doesn't exist anymore, Emery. It doesn't exist. <laughs> it's dead. But it, it, I mean, actually, in terms of City and PSG, that they, they they are bottomless pit. I mean, these are funded by autocratic governments. They can spend literally as much as they want to on anybody they want to. And they, they are bottomless pits. So unless there's some kind of regulation, they will keep spending more and more and more. Mm. Do you think that that game did prove that they need a Harry Kane, either Harry Kane himself or or a player like him? Yes. I, I mean, they did create some chances, but uh, they didn't look quite themselves. I, mean, I suppose it is a bit early to judge a team when so many players have been a, a bit late back into training. They've got one or two key players that injured. They looked much better when De Bruyne came on. And they did score a lot of goals last year. And I mean, the only player who's gone is Aguero, who didn't actually contribute an awful lot in terms of goals last year. But they have looked like they've needed a more conventional sort of focal point for some time. Kane obviously can play as the out-and-out centre-forward, though increasingly drops a bit deeper. Haaland has made a fantastic start again at Dortmund. He's the other one you'd look at if you could prize him away. It does look like they would be stronger with a player like that. Having said that, when you look at the resources they've got, they ought to have enough anyway. For Spurs, Amory, it was you know pretty much the perfect start, wasn't it? You know, we had the one of our own chance, which are usually directed at Harry Kane, but now it was at Oliver Skip and Jaffet Tanganga. Don't underestimate the players you can develop in-house, I suppose, is the uh, the moral of that story. I like it when academy players get an opportunity for first-team football because they will be hungry, they'll be desperate to prove what they can do, and it's a chance for them to shine. And sometimes spending X amounts on a player who's played abroad doesn't necessarily solve a problem. I'd like more clubs to actually look at homegrown. I know there's all rules around that, but I'd like them to look at homegrown as well as looking abroad to see if they have a problem that maybe a potentially a player from here can solve it. And I think the issue that Spurs have had for a long time is right back since Carl Walker left when he went to Manchester City, others have tried to fill that gap. Kieran Trippier did okay. Serge Aurier's had, you know, flashes here and there. I don't think he's been entirely sold by the Spurs fans. And then you had Matt Doherty as well. So, and then you saw Yafet Tanganga come through yesterday. And you know what? He seized his opportunity and then some and showed what he could do. Because as I said, as an academy player, you want to show what you can do. And if, if a manager believes and gives you that opportunity, you want to demonstrate you can do that. And for me, Tanganga... When I looked at his stats yesterday, you know, this was only his 13th appearance in the Premier League and he certainly seized his opportunity and ran with it so much so, I think he committed like three or four fouls in the first half and it did really make me chuckle 
when Anthony Taylor called over Captain Hugo Lloris to have a word with Tanganga and tell him to calm down a bit. Because honestly, I think the crowd all around you, the flags waving, the energy's up. It's Manchester City, the title holders. You're getting your first start under a new manager. I think there was a couple of rash things that happened, but then he calmed down a bit and delivered and more. So yes, it's great. I love the fact that he's homegrown and the fans have recognised that. Can he solve the problem of Ryback with Spurs? I'd like to think he can. I'd love to see him come through. He's one of the best things about the All or Nothing documentary. He came across really well in that. Yeah, yeah. I, I spent some time with him about two or three seasons ago when he was still in the eight under-18s and he came across as a very, very level-headed, grounded lad. In fact, Spurs, their old director of football, John McDermott, who's now at the AFA, wanted to maintain that grounding and he sent him out after training to go and work with the ground staff, you know, like picking weeds out of the flower beds and stuff like that, which I thought was a really, really interesting dynamic there. And I suppose you know, we've had another example, haven't we, this weekend, Glenn, about an academy player coming through or certainly making an impact, Trevo Chiloba. This is probably a test, isn't it, of Chelsea's valuation of that whole academy loan development system. If you look at it logically, okay, you've got defenders, quite a few defenders to come back, but he could save them 50 million plus for Jules Kunde, couldn't he? He could too, very much so. And it was great. Brilliant moment when he scored his goal and his celebrations. I mean, I have to say that academy system is, is working pretty well. I mean, A, it does bring through players. I mean, Mason Mount being a shining example recently and now uh, hopefully Chaloba. But then also in terms of financing the investment, because it is a hell of an investment if you go down a common amount of money being spent on the academy and the staffing and the buildings and so on. I mean, you look through the players that they're selling. It's amazing going through the... Um, List of players, the transfers this summer, the amount of players who are coming from Chelsea who have been sold off, like the guy going to Palace, who I'm not going to try and pronounce, or the uh, yeah, all the various other players going off and loaning one or two places. I mean, they really are producing an awful lot of footballers, and some of which they're generating significant sums of money for. So in that respect, it's working very well. I mean, what they're picking up, 50 million for Tammy Abraham, that will cover the bills for quite a long time. Certainly. be interesting to see how he gets on with a certain Mr Mourinho, won't it, at um, Roma. Staying on Chelsea, Anne-Marie, they've won 20 trophies in the Abramovich era. Somehow, Thomas Tuchel classes them as fourth favourites for the title. Really? <laughs> Ridiculous. I mean, have you seen the squad they have? And now that they've got Romelu Lukaku as well, please... Fourth is not even going to be an option for Chelsea because they finished fourth last season. This season, it's all about first or second. And I will put them as actually second for me in my predictions this season. I'd put them above Liverpool and Manchester United. The title challenge is the absolute priority for Chelsea. And the fact that Chelsea managed to get one over Manchester City several times, that's a green light for me. So I think for the one thing for Chelsea, though, don't sack your manager halfway through the season, please. When things start to go a little bit wayward, which they will because it is a long season, they can't run at 100 miles per hour all the time. Don't sack him, please. You've got to have to, they're going to have to keep the faith. Consistency is needed. The fact that Jorginho was the one who got the most goals for Chelsea last season, bringing in Romelu Lukaku is a game changer for me because he's a unit. They need a striker. Timo Werner, we can see that he creates chances, but he's not finishing them off. Hopefully now he'll be pushed to develop that. And then he's got Thomas Tuchel as his coach. You know, it's I, I cannot see how Chelsea will end up being fourth in the Premier League again. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I, I, I had them down as champions, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, Glenn, we've known over the years, isn't it? One of the things that you can rely on managers being is, is masters of the art of the three-card trick. They all want to dampen expectations. I'm looking at Jurgen Klopp and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, you know what you've got and you're not really want, you don't really want, you're, it's quite happy. You're quite happy to allow other people just to run you down a bit. Oh, yes, everybody always talks up the opposition on a match-by-match -match basis and, indeed, other teams on a seasonal basis. Uh, Liverpool will also obviously be up there. Very impressive at the weekend, admittedly against relatively moderate opposition. But when you consider they've got one or two players that come back as well, again, I think... I mean, we have been there before. At the moment, it does look like we could have a four-team title race. 
we may have to revisit this in March when one of them is 20 points clear. But at the moment, it does look like it's going to be quite, you know, quite open. Yet to see the impact of you know, last year's crowded season and the fact that a lot of players haven't had that much rest you know, and there's lots of competitions to be played. So that will obviously have an effect as one or two players get injured and so on. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, Van Dijk being injured made a big impact on Liverpool season last year. And those sort of injuries could happen to any of those teams, you know, to key players. But they've all got tremendous depth. But yeah, Liverpool contenders. But I must say, I also would say Chelsea are in the top two with City. Yeah, I suppose it would be stretching a point to call Liverpool the anti-City at the moment, but they are almost looking to almost strengthen what they have already within the building, i.e. you've got Virgil van Dijk committing himself to the future of the club. You've got, it seems, this morning, Monday morning, Jordan Henderson's now expected to sign a new three-year contract with the option of a fourth year. They're actually doing it in a very sensible way, which actually, to be honest, Amory, is the way they the way they operate anyway. They they are smart, aren't they? They are smart, and they'll be fully aware of the dominance of City United and the Chelsea surge, as well. And the question for me for Liverpool is that can they compete with City in terms of the acquisition of Jack Grealish and potentially Harry Kane? And you know, no doubt injuries played a massive part for Liverpool's campaign last season and lessons would have been learned from that and it's great news hearing about Jordan Henderson I you know I, there was talk about but he's injury prone and how can they give him a long-term contract that man is the as I've said on on your podcast before Mike he is the glue that holds the midfield together for me and they need him for the next few years at least if he can keep injury free I think also will be key is Thiago as well Alcantara I think he's going to be great in the midfield now that you know Genie has gone off to Paris Saint-Germain, Fabino as well. So, yeah, getting the business done, I want to say early because the window's closing in a couple of weeks' time, but they've been sensible about it. No big fanfares about it. Have you noticed? Nobody's really gone loud with the big transfers, have they? Everyone's kept it, kept it a fairly even tone over the last few weeks or so. So I don't know if anybody else is going to come into Liverpool, actually, because I think with the last season, others have shown that they can step up. Nat Phillips, for example, I think did a great job when he needed to, and as well as a few others as well. So lessons definitely learned from Liverpool last season. Getting Jordan Henderson to sign his name on the dotted line, I think is a big bonus for them, but they will want to try and keep the pressure up on City for sure. I mean, that midfield against Norwich was three reserve midfielders. Yeah, Naby Keita did well though, didn't he, Glenn? He did, but it wouldn't be. I mean, your first choice midfield you imagine would be Henderson, Fabino, and uh, Thiago. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think for you know Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and Keita, they can fill in when necessarily. They're not going to be starters. Plus Milner, plus Harvey Elliott's coming through. So I mean, they have got a lot of depth in the in the squad. Yeah, and do you think also? You know, I I can see them. You know, we always talked about the the Fab Three, didn't we? Actually, it's probably going to be the Fab Four because rotation's going to be a key part of this season isn't it and do you see Glenn the, that role of you know a Yotto coming in you know, he did well at Norwich probably the only untouchable is Mo Salah isn't it another couple of assists and a goal to start his season so do you, do you expect um, Klopp to rotate that attack Yes, I do, for, for two reasons. I mean, one, obviously, freshness for the, for the players themselves. And also, it presents different challenges because Yotta's a different player to the others and he's, he can play wide or he can play down through the centre. In fact, to be honest, I mean, one or two of them can. But therefore, that does create a different problem for opponents from week to week, not knowing who's going to be starting. And obviously, it gives you a game-changing possibility during the game. And I think him scoring straight away was quite important because he does tend to go on a run of form for goals. So it's always good for goal scorers to get... Um, early goals at the start of the season. I mean, it's interesting uh, this week, a lot of the sort of the big key players, you would say, Salah, Fernandes, uh, Vardy, they all scored, yeah, all off the mark very early on. Yeah. Now, I'll apologise in advance for this, Anne-Marie, but I'm going to have to intrude on a little bit of private grief here. Arsenal. Now, there's been a lot of emphasis on, you know, I suppose culture shift at the club, lots of new appointments across the board. So why, oh, why did they show the same old softness at Brentford? I'm going to just uh, take a moment for just one second. (laughs) (laughs) She's dabbing her eyes, uh, dear dear listener. Oh, goodness me. I had so much optimism on Friday, Mike. Honestly, I really did. 
Oh dear, oh dear. I mean, look, full congratulations to Brentwood. They played Arsenal off the park. There is no doubt about that. There is that softness as you talked about. And my question for me, uh, I, I just, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I, I just don't. The creative aspect of Arsenal has, has is, it was a big concern last season and day one of the Premier League, big showcase. It is a massive concern Again, there is no doubt that Arsenal has a young team with big futures. You know, Flo Balogun, Martinelli, Smith Rowe, Reese Nelson. I can give you a whole list. It's just, I just don't know what it is. It's just something that is just not clicking for Arsenal right now. And time is seriously running out. And if you were watching that game on Friday, which I'm sure a lot of people were, you were thinking, Arsenal's ripe for the taking because of that softness in the centre. And that's what, you know, Arsenal was famous for its defence, but it's almost famous for its steel tenacity in the midfield. And that has, I'm sorry to say, has has died a death. I, I don't know what it is. I, it's, is it the training? Is it the coaching tactics? Is it the lack of confidence in the players? Is it because Lacazette and Aubameyang didn't play? Is it the way that Arteta is setting them up? There are so many questions and not many answers. And my fear, Arsenal go and play Chelsea next. Uh, you know, I've already worried, you know, worked that through my mind already. If Arteta doesn't sort this out by October, I fear for him. I really, really do. Because I think, I don't really believe last year, people talk about, well, he's had a bit of a pass because of COVID, because of injuries, etc., etc. I don't think that's entirely true. He talked about big plans. He talked about commitment, passion, and various other non-negotiables. That's not necessarily translating on the pitch. So I don't think he's going to have as much time as I think he think he has to turn this this team around. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, not only that, they've got Chelsea at home and the atmosphere is going to be interesting there. This is one club who might not benefit from having the fans back. Then away to Man City, and in between, a quite tricky EFL Carabao Cup match against West, at West Brom, who started well. Yeah, then into playing Tottenham in end of September, and it's going to be quite a tricky start. I must admit, they need to get some results quickly. Yeah, and you know, we've been around long enough, haven't we, Glenn, to actually sort of read a few signs. For me, my warning sign, you know, beyond the obvious that you know, they they were just like a, a wet rag in the middle of the defence. You've got bad vibes around Aubameyang and Lacazette. You know, what are they up to, really? But also, when you see a young player who's just made his debut, Lakonga, fronting up for the post-match interviews, which were obviously difficult after a defeat like that, you know, him being there instead of someone senior, you know, tells me that there's something just not right. There's no leadership there, is there? Yeah, so it reflects very well on him, obviously. I thought he made a quite impressive start. But, uh, yeah, I think Ben White then came out and spoke. But it, it doesn't look good. You expect the senior players. I remember at Chelsea, he, the two players always turned up when after bad performance were John Terry and Frank Lampard and when things were going badly. It does so something about a club when the people who talk, the old Kibling thing, when you've lost the pair of front up. It does look like there's a bit of a softness. I mean, the key, the key players in the team are Smith, Rowe and Saka who are two of the youngest players in the team. Uh, yeah, and, and Tierney obviously looks like he could be a bit of a leader, a, a key player, but he's injury prone. So, yeah, there are issues there, certainly have been for a while. I mean, no one's talking about them as contenders, are they? It's whether they can even get into the conference, the Europa Conference. The one thing I will say, Mike, is that if Lacazette had been playing, he would have been one who'd done the interviews because when Arsenal lost in the past, he's been the person that has gone up and, and done the post-match. We missed him, or Arsenal missed him, I should say, on Friday that is for sure. But you're right. I would have expected Granit Xhaka as the captain to do the post-match interviews on Friday or even Bern Leno to do as two of the senior players on the pitch. I would have expected one of those two to do the post-match interviews. Maybe they thought with Lukonga making his debut, a chance for him to get in front of the media because we hadn't heard from him as fans. Perhaps that was the thinking behind it. And, and Glenn is right. Ben White did do a couple of interviews. I think Pepe might have done some for the foreign media as well. But yeah, it just it just doesn't look good. I will say this though, gents, the All or Nothing documentary when it comes out is going to be very, very interesting to watch. <laughs> yeah, what, what's it going to be fired under? Tragedy or comedy? <laughs> tragic comedy. No yeah, tragic comedy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brentford, by contrast, Glenn, it couldn't have gone better for them, could it? 
yeah, fantastic start. It's all you could ask for, isn't it? And it's very. I like the way the ground has been designed to, to keep sound in. That sort of that, that big canopy roof over the main stand. You had a real sense of uh, noise and atmosphere there. It's been a fantastic start for them. What you need a promoted team is to hit the ground running, get those early points on the ball before it becomes a bit of a slog before teams start to find you out. And that's a that's a brilliant start for them. They look like they're going to be a threat up front. Uh, slightly shocked at the second goal. I mean, how you can concede a, a long throw that bounces in the box. Yeah, I know there's an argument that Lena may have been being held, but um, it should never be allowed to bounce. But the uh, it looks very good for them as a start. I mean, it is going to get harder. I did wonder whether there was an awful lot of the manager about the manager at, at the end, you know, rather than necessarily the players. I think he's going to be a character. He might, he's got to try and avoid him getting too big for the team in a way. But you couldn't have scripted it better if you're a Brentford fan. Mm. And it was just, you know, you look at players who work them, you know, work their way up leagues, like, you know, Ivan Tony, for instance, Anne-Marie. There's an irony to all this, is that Brentford are, you know, quite rightly lauded for their analytical approach. But in modern football, it won't take long, as Glenn hinted out there, for the rest of the Premier League, you know, to go over the tapes, to study them, and find the weaknesses. I suppose in terms of limited horizons, all Brentford want to do is finish fourth from bottom, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and Brentford will need to stay strong. They will no doubt be aware that the other two teams that came up for the, the championship, Norwich and Watford, of course, have already played in the Premier League. So they know what it's all about. Brentford are first timers. So I think they'll look at somebody, maybe look at Leeds, and try and emulate what they did when they were promoted into the Premier League and stayed up, how much they've thrived after promotion. They're not going to change their style, are they, Brentford? I think they will keep attacking and they will become more solid over time when they play more tougher opponents than Arsenal. And as for Ivan Tony, he's going to give defenders a really, really hard time. Good luck, everyone. I think he's somebody who can translate his ability from... You know, he's played at Peterborough, then came to Brentford, and now he's in the Premier League. That's what he wanted. I remember his interview, his post-match interview, when Brentford were promoted, he said, all I wanted to be is become a Premiership or Premier League striker, and now I am. And I think he will translate that ability in the top flight because he doesn't lack self-confidence, that young man, in his ability, and the pressure doesn't seem to to phase him either. So feeding him the ball, his link-up play and his ability to be nifty around the box, I think will be absolutely crucial this season. They remind me a little bit of Reading when they came out under Steve Koppel with their energy and, and design. Reading, if you call it a fantastic first season, but they got relegated the second season because it's quite hard to sustain that unless you've got sufficient quality in the squad. Mm, yeah, well, we've seen at Watford, haven't we, Glenn, about the sort of bouncing up and down. You know, they had a similarly good start beating Aston Villa. Cucho Hernandez. Now, I was first aware of him about four or five years ago. You know, the scouts at the time were calling him the new Aguero. And as such, he he typifies the sort of, you know, the strange mystique of Watford's recruitment policy. You know, they've got players closeted all around the world. He scored a great goal, I thought. What about your first impressions of Watford? Well, they need to hold on to Saar, who's obviously going to be a very important player for them this season. I mean, it gave him that target. He had a very good year last year, a, a torrid time. Great goal from Fernandes, as you mentioned. I mean, there will be a surprise package to start with, even in today's modern era of everyone knowing everything about oppositions. Watford will have one or two players who less than known about. There's, there's always a question. I mean, it's interesting watching the manager's reactions on the touchline. He looks to be one of the more dem- demonstrative managers because there is always so much instability behind at the club. But they did a lot of things right at the weekend. They did a really good package for supporters, like supporters who um, had lost in the pandemic. They had a lot of NHS staff parade on the pitch. They got a lot of things right behind the scenes now at Watford. So I'd be interested to see how they get on. And they will be stronger for the you know, the recent experience of coming up and then going down. I, I think you can make a case of quite a lot of teams having a difficult second half of the season and going down. I don't think there's anyone you're going to say, well, they're going to go down. You look at the division, you've got about seven or eight, nine teams who are going to be thinking, well... Yeah, we need to we need to start. We all need to get points in the bag, and Watford would be one of those. All the promoted clubs would be one of those. But yeah, you're looking also at Burnley, Pally, Southampton. Uh, it's going to be quite a few clubs. You know, casting an eye around them, needing to pick up early points. 
Yeah, Norwich. You know, obviously, I don't think it's fair to judge them on a on you know one game against Liverpool. But you do look at that defence and you worry a bit, don't you, Amory? Grant Hanley and Ben Gibson were absolutely brilliant for Norwich in the Championship, and my heart absolutely sank for Norwich when the Premier League computer spat out the new fixtures, and I just thought it's like deja vu for them because, of course, they played at Anfield and lost, I think, four one when they were last in the Premier League. So. You know, they improved their defensive record for sure in the Championship, but as we know, the Championship and the Premier League are vastly different from each other, and those two are going to have to deliver again, channeling the same energy that they had in the Championship for the Premier League. They also, I think, for me, the worry, as well as sorting out that back line and making it more, even more solid, is the midfield, because I think Oli Skip, or Oliver Skip, as I called him, has now returned back to Tottenham. He was their defensive midfielder for Norwich and he played a massive heart part. Him and Kenny McLean together in that midfield added some real spine and Skip had some real tenacity about him, some quick feet, always watching, always keeping an eye on where the ball is and I think he is going to be a big miss and I know Billy Gilmore can play as a defensive midfielder but he's better as a central midfielder in my opinion so I think that's going to be an area that uh, other teams are going to going to target. So I like Daniel Farker a lot. I like Norwich a lot. I'm keeping my fingers crossed for them. I notice a lot of people have predicted already, all the pundits, what have you, saying that Norwich are going to be the ones to go down. I don't know. I am I think the football gods are, look, are going to look kindly on Norwich because I think big lessons were learnt from what happened last time. And the fans are back at Carrow Road, which means a home advantage. I know against Liverpool it didn't necessarily work out that way, but Liverpool are on another sphere than everybody else. But I think other teams, I think Norwich will be able to get some points. Yeah, well, that, those other teams, Glenn, if you're looking around the league, where were the early warning signals? You know, I'll point one out, Burnley. Lost the lead. I think it's now 11 Premier League home games without a win. Uh, you know, we say this every year, don't we? You know, is Sean Dyche going to produce another miracle? It's asking a lot, isn't it? Because there's a. I also get the sense that the the culture of the club's changing a little bit under the new owners? Yes. I mean, I think this defeat at home was more significant of all the previous ones because there were fans in the ground. I think we're back to the, the old the old normal, as it were, whereas home defeats now shouldn't be happening quite as often as they were. Uh, we've had a whole season based on neutral territory. And it was a one result and also to get ahead and then fall, fall behind. The new owners have come in. It's not immediately obvious where they've invested in the club. You know, they've used Burnley's own money to buy it, one of those uh, slightly controversial deals. So, again, you can't keep treading water. The team was basically the same team as last year. I look at them and you do think this might be the year. He's certainly going to have work cut out. They're going to have to, going to, have to make sure that people like Ben Mee stay fit because yeah, they do need their key players in the back four to stay fit. The Mee, Tarkovsky, Pope, that, that triangle. I worry about Southampton. They've lost some good players. Armstrong looks like he's going to be a decent signing, but Ings did have a lot of goals to replace. So there's another team you might have issues with. So there certainly are one or two clubs you look at, you know, Crystal Palace. I mean, they've, they've, they're trying to do a big cultural change, aren't they? Obviously, Chelsea away isn't really a fair place to judge anybody. But again, that's quite difficult to instigate that cultural change. They tried it once before. We wanted to boom and change very quickly. So there's been quite a turnover there. We'll see what happens with them. Yeah, it's interesting you're talking about Southampton there, Glenn. They subsided at Everton. On the other side of that, Amory. Rafa Benitez needed that, didn't he? You know, there, there was some unrest at half-time and he's turned it round. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because I was certainly, my eyebrows certainly went up when I read that Rafa Benitez was going to be joining Everton purely because of the success he had at Liverpool and how he's revered around the cop. But these are modern times and managers can work where they like. And I think there was some hesitancy, and I've been diplomatic from some of the fans, shall we say. Um, <laughs> but he he delivered over the weekend. And Everton is, is a team that want to... They've got big ideas and they want those ideas to be delivered. And I think, for me, Everton will need to show that they can play in the top half of the table. A lot of money has been spent for that club. Mashiri has spent a lot of money bringing in players and managers to deliver a trophy. I cannot see any reason why Everton cannot have a good run at the League Cup and the FA Cup this year. I know that they want to finish in a good position for the Premier League as well, but it always does. But my mind does also boggle when 
certain teams in the Premier League don't go for those two cups. And I'm hoping that this year, Rafa Benitez, given his record, given his history of, of his capability of winning trophies, they should be the two that are on the to-do list for Everton this season. Mm. What about Wolves, Glenn? You know, great to see uh, Raul Jimenez back, but they did look ineffective, I thought, at Leicester. And when you look at the culture of that club, I'm not quite sure what they represent anymore. Yes, uh, again, there's been a bit of turnover there. Obviously, changing management's going to be difficult uh, for, for a while to see how they settle in. I mean, they had a good second half, but didn't really... I mean, a couple of chances fell to Traore, whose strength isn't really his finishing. So I, I don't think there'd be any danger of going down, but I don't think they're going to be threatening the, the, the top you know, top half, the top of the European places either. It may be another season of transition as they work through the Nuno era and into the county. But yeah, I mean, there's... What they represent was lots of questions about the ownership and the um, heavy influence of a certain agent. But in terms of what they represent on the pitch, whether it's like a staging post for players or a parking place for players, is almost hard to tell. But again, that's another place. Fans back. Monu's a great venue when it's full, it's vibrant. So I would have thought they would all have a, a solid season, if an unspectacular one. Yeah, another a ground which which hums is obviously St James's Park. Newcastle were ultimately overrun by West Ham, weren't they, Anne-Marie? What a game yesterday. Goodness me, it was a brilliant game. And I, I'm going to give that the game of the weekend for me, actually, because the, you could just feel the energy when I was watching it on the TV, the crowd being back at St James's Park. That loss is going to is going to hurt this morning for, for Newcastle, particularly as they were leading, as they were going into half-time. And, you know, you've got to give props to West Ham because they came back twice. And I'm hoping no one, I'm hoping no Newcastle fans, and I don't think they are, but I'm going to say I hope nobody's looking at the goalkeeper, Freddie Woodman, for the loss. It's hard enough coming in, you know, knowing that you're two, the two top goalkeepers, one is out with injury and others recovering from, from COVID. That's big enough pressure as it is. Then you're playing at St. James's Park. You're playing against a team that's got, you know, full of attacking prowess, particularly from that midfield. And, you know, that save that he made from Jared Bowen in the first half, we literally just bounced off his body as the ball was coming at him at great speed. But also saving the, the penalty from Antonio. I know it's not going to help with Newcastle this morning, but I think they can take a little bit of glimmer of hope from that. But, but, but that back line of Newcastle did not do their job yesterday of, I think, Kraft Fernandez and Kraft as well. I mean, when I saw the lineup and I saw there was five in the back line, I thought, goodness me, they're really going heavy on the defensive side and they still couldn't stop West Ham. So a lot of questions for Steve Bruce this morning on his tactics. Yeah, and I do get the sense that the fans have him on a pretty short leash, don't they, Glenn? Very much so. I mean, he's a lightning rod for the dissatisfaction with the owner, isn't he? I suspect one or two managers might have thought, I don't really need this and, and quit. But obviously from the area, he wants to try and turn things around. But I don't think there's a massive amount of patience. Uh, there's been a lot of discontentment at the club for a long time because of the lack of investment. Bruce is doing a pretty good fish with what he's got. But yeah, it could be another tough season for him if they don't pick up some results, particularly at home. Yeah. Well, just to sort of pull it all together, really, I, I think it's been a, you know, a good opening weekend. I think it was 34 goals. What was your favourite moment from that opening weekend? I'll start with you, if I may, Amory. Trevor Chabola, his face when he got the golf was at Stamford Bridge. Mm. I don't think he believed it for a second. <laughs> and I loved how everyone came around him, and uh, he just he came around to to congratulate him. That was, you know, that pure look of. Have I just scored? And yeah, I've just scored. And I'm, yeah, I'm making my debut. Ah, all those emotions probably running, you know, mixture of emotions running through him at the same time and being on the winning side as well. That for me was just a pure moment of that is what it is for me for, for football when you get that opportunity. And I, you know, we talked about Tanganga, get that opportunity early to shine and you seize that opportunity and you grab it and you score a goal for the team that you've loved since you were eight years old, working as a ball boy, sitting watching training and wondering when you get your chance and you get your chance and you take it and it pays back in dividends. So for me, his goal for Chelsea. Yeah, it was beautiful, I thought, beautiful. 
What about you, Glenn? Well, it must have been a certain amount of NUI when it, uh, the Premier League came bouncing back through the front door, all bothered, booted and suited. And you know, is it back already with all the focus of money these days and so on and the concentration of wealth? Uh, and then, of course, then the football starts and the football's great. So you immediately get wrapped up in it again. And I, I particularly love Dominic Calvert-Lewin's goal, a, a real old-fashioned head among the boots, diving head of the sort we don't see very much these days and the explosion of sort of noise and joy around it. And you just don't get, with a lot of great goals that we can, but that was a goal that, you know, we used to see and we tend not to see anymore. In the old days, of course, he would have got up absolutely covered in mud, but the pitches are perfect now. Very much a throwback to Andy Gray. He used to score those sort of goals for Everton and uh, that, was, uh, that was great to see. Yeah. Well, if you can't be optimistic at the start of a season, when can you? For me, I absolutely loved everything about Brentford's Premier League debut. You know, it wasn't just the intensity of the performance. It was the interaction between the manager, who, as Glenn said earlier, is going to be a bit of a personality, the players and specifically the fans. And those fans, for me, provided the highlight of the opening weekend by giving Bukayo Saka a standing ovation. Now, coming on the back of a similar gesture by Spurs fans... It felt like a small but very significant victory for decency and the silent majority. I think we might be getting somewhere in the fight against racism. I hope you do too. It only remains for me to thank Anne-Marie and Glenn for their insight and to thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.